Hi, and welcome to Drawing Inspiration. I am your host, Mike Hindley. Episode 51, Art Education, Creating Pigments, and the Clubhouse App, with Sunaina Bakshi. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. Hope you're all doing okay. So I've got a few updates I'm going to go through quickly here, and then we'll jump right into the interview. The first is a follow-up from my previous podcast, and I thought you guys would kind of find this uh, interesting. So back in episode 32, I talked about having a conversation with a researcher around a UFO incident that happened in my area before I moved here. And so I provided a little bit of information for the researcher, and that uh, documentary came out. It's very short. I provide a, a link to it in the show notes. It's called UFO Town, and it's on CBC here in Canada. I think you can watch it online. I'll provide a link to it anyways. And I was so surprised. It was actually quite well done. I think they did a good job of covering the history on this. And I was so surprised at the end when it lists, uh, you know, people in the credit that they'd like to thank. And there was my name. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of, uh, that was kind of cool. I wasn't expecting that. I had paused it because I was wondering if there was people that I knew. And sure enough, there was. And it was me. So I didn't really contribute a whole lot to this. It's an interesting uh documentary and it's based off of some previous footage and some previous coverage by Unsolved Mysteries as well. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, it's it's a good watch. So I would recommend checking it out. So since the last podcast, I did a workshop with uh, Ian Finelli. Uh, so Ian was on episode 25 of Drawing Inspiration, talking about his journey and his creative process. And he did a workshop through Etcher Studio. It was only about 90 minutes long, and I was an attendee, and so our focus was drawing a tractor. So I did that with everyone through Zoom, and it was great. I really enjoyed the instruction with Ian. It caused me to look at kind of urban sketching a little bit differently. And so now I'm motivated to get out there again once we're free of lockdown and do some more urban sketching with some more vibrant colors and a little bit of a different process and approach to that. So so I really enjoyed it. I'm going to be looking for more of this kind of material. I provide a link in the show notes to the piece that I had finished with regard to that. And if you want to check out Ian, once again, it's episode 25, and I also provide a link to that in the show notes. So since the last episode, I'd finished the snapping turtle I was working on, and it was about maybe eight hours of work. So I'm quite happy with the way it turned out. It was a mix of a variety of graphite pencils, but once again, I fell back to the Pentel Graph Gear 1000 in the 0.3 millimeter and the 2B lead. I did use some graphite powder to try and do the sun rays coming down in through the water, and those were challenging. I think I'd probably do it a little bit differently next time. My first time kind of playing with that approach, especially with graphite powder, I think I've only done it once before. You know, this is part of kind of pushing the boundaries of, of what I normally do and trying to look at different techniques and different materials. I added some tadpoles into the picture. This was based off of somebody who made a comment through my Instagram. It's like, yeah, I should. So I actually used the tadpoles to kind of show depth. You'll see some uh, ones that are kind of deeper in the image that are a little bit blurred out. And so I thought that provided some interesting kind of bokeh or, or depth within what I was drawing and added a few more animals additional animals in there as well. So it was it was a good exercise. I was glad to be able to do or to, to be able to spend that much time on a larger piece. Uh, normally I do kind of much smaller images that are anywhere between one and three hours. So it was kind of fun. And this was, I think it was nine by 12 is the actual size of the paper. And so that gives you perspective kind of on 
all of that as well. So I'll provide a link in the show notes if you want to take a look at the final image. I've been also playing with the Cardinals. I'm doing some initial sketches on the iPad, and I'm also working with colored pencil in doing some of these uh, images. This is uh, a request or commission, I guess you could say. And I'm using uh, the Faber-Castell Polychromos as my colored pencil of choice. So I'm working with a little bit of a different technique to try and soften it up a little bit and blend. And I'm using a material called Zestit, which is a material for helping kind of blend colored pencils. And it works really well. Like it kind of takes away the scratchiness, brings the colors together. So I've been using it a little bit on the Cardinal. I think I'm going to do a little bit more of that. And you can draw on top of it so you can do this as layers. And so it's been an interesting exercise. I mean, I love colored pencils. I want to do more of it. But the blending is, um, I don't know, I don't like that kind of burnishing approach. And I find this is a bit more interesting. And the solvent doesn't smell bad. And I had to actually order it. I'm in Canada, so I had to order it from England. And I'm really happy I did and got a decent-sized bottle. This will last quite a while, but it's uh, it's really interesting material. You can check out my Instagram. I've done a few live draws using this uh, this kind of solvent. So it's a, it's a good approach to kind of smoothing out if you're playing with colored pencils and you want to kind of smooth that out a little bit and blend the colors. It's a really great approach. And so the last thing I'll mention is that I'm doing a giveaway through Instagram. I'm finally launching that on April 21st. So that's this upcoming Wednesday. I'm going to run it for a few days. And really all you have to do if you want to receive a print from me, I'm going to be giving away two prints, is you need to like my Instagram post and then comment with the print that you would like from my website. I think I've got maybe 12 there now. So all you have to do is comment with the title of the piece from my website. And I'll provide that instruction in the Instagram post as well, but that'll be launching on Wednesday, April 21st. And you'll have an opportunity to receive one of my prints. I'll cover shipping and everything. I'll pick two winners a few days later. I'll ship the prints off to you. So once again, giving away two prints, that'd be kind of a fun thing to do. I'd like to do this maybe on a more regular basis. So we'll see how this turns out. So that's it for updates. Uh, Now let's head into the interview. I discovered my guest this week on the Clubhouse app, which is an audio chat app on iOS. She co-hosts a room called the Artist Cove, which covers interesting topics for creatives via a question of the day. Her wonderful art explores natural pigments that she uses to create her own paints. As a recent graduate with a master's in fine art, she provides a unique perspective on education and creative process. To talk about her creative journey, it is my pleasure to welcome to the Drawing Inspiration podcast, Sunaina Bakshi. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Mike. It's great to be here. Thanks for agreeing to come on. It was great that we're able to connect. We uh, were able to connect through Clubhouse and you do some awesome work in that. You had such interesting perspectives and thoughts on art and creativity. I thought it was it would be great to have you on the podcast to talk about this. And it's it's so funny. People joke on Clubhouse because a lot of people nickname you Sunshine. And uh <laughs> I didn't realize it. I mean, it's a beautiful nickname to have. But uh, when I type in uh, Sunaina into my uh, iPhone, it autocorrects it to sunshine. So it's meant to maybe be. that's why people do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So awesome. welcome. Thank you. So I wanted to, as I normally do with my guests, is to try to understand your your origin story here, because it sounds like you have so much knowledge in all areas of art and creativity. And I wanted to kind of get into this because I think. For those who are starting out or just trying to develop their skills, that I think a lot of uh, what you have to say is going to really impact them. So, but I, I wanted to get back to that. Did you 
start out as an artist? Did you, I mean, we all start drawing and using crayons as a kid, but when did it flip for you as being something that you wanted to pursue? I think for me, so that's one question I love to kind of answer because for me, it started off just as everyone else, you know, you get your crayons, your kind of pencils, you know, but I was very much from a very young age and this might sound really morbid to some people, but I loved like, you know, going out in the parks and making, you know, sand castles. And I love the texture of the sand and the kind of grass and the nature. So I think how I kind of really got into art was, I think I was really, again, as a, you know, a girl, when you were a kid, you love Barbie dolls and the Bratz dolls and all those kind of uh, little figurines. Um, I started painting and sketching out different, let's say, food outlets like McDonald's signs. You got Subway, you had Pizza Hut. I started literally sketching out the different logos. And um, I started painting the different kind of you know, toys that kids would play with, that I would like to play with. So I used to paint like little rabbits and, I don't know, Barbie dolls and God knows what. I was a bit of a weird kid that way. But um, <laughs> I would paint really kind of, you know, and I still have a folder of these. I mean, if I can find them, I would love to kind of share it eventually one day. But I used to paint all these really like little bits and pieces around me. And I think my mum kind of came in and she was like, okay, my daughter is a bit weird, but she has some kind of... <laughs> you know, um, creative knack going on there. So she kind of then sent me to a special, not not a school, but like a side kind of course that I would do. And I had an art mentor and this was in the Middle East. And I had an art mentor and she kind of helped me develop my skills into like, you know, drawing, sketching, the different ways of shading, the kind of, you know, standards that you get. And then from then on, I did this before I went to like, you know, selected a subject as art in school because I could select subjects um, back then in the um, schools and universities. So I, I got in, I got in touch with my mentor, you know, she taught me a few skills. And as I started, like, you know, refining my Barbie doll drawings and um, food signs and logos, I was like, okay, I had this feeling that, you know, I think it's something that I really want to pursue further. And that's when in, um, I think it was when I was in grade 10, I select, because you could choose your subjects um, then. And I selected art, music, drama. And psychology and all of them were like had some creative kind of you know back to them like you've got psychology you've got art drama music they're all quite a creative side of you know take on the world so I selected those um, subjects and it, this, how, this is hilarious I mean I was more interested in art rather than any other subject I chose it came down to a lot of things like you know I was doing really well in the class my you know I won a competition and those kind of things just gave me this confidence booster that Art is something I want to take further. And of course, there were pressures of like, you know, oh, it's not a career, etc. You can't make money from it. The standard kind of, you know, statements you get from people. But I was like, no, I love it. I'm going to do it because I want to do it. And it sounds really cliched, but that's something that really got me where I am today. So I hope that answered the question. Absolutely. And so where did you grow up? So I was um, born in India. I moved to the Middle East in a place called Bahrain. It's next to Saudi Arabia when I was six months old. And I was raised there for until I was 18. And then I moved to the UK. So I'm all over the place. <laughs> That's awesome. Do you think there's more pressure there to head down an academic route? Uh, do you think it's different there versus, you know, going into to the arts? I think it is because it comes down to the cultural kind of norm and background of the society that's there. And obviously, you know, I come, my parents have been very supportive because again, this thing, I am South Asian, I am Indian. So there's this thing of, you know, you have to get, you know, a good job, sustainable income, so on and so forth. But I think because I was raised in a different environment, and if I were to be raised in India, perhaps it would have been different for me because there's this country norm that obviously, you know, getting into the arts is like, 
okay, is she okay? Is everything fine with her kind of a, <laughs> right. you know, take? But I think there were pressures, but not from my family, but from the school I went to. Because although the school was very much, you know, it had your, you know, you had like English people there, you had Americans, Canadians. It was quite international that way. But the whole norm of the school was very academic. So growing up and kind of studying in a school where there's this pressure on biology, psychology, philosophy, all the sciences, the maths. And I was like, no, I like art. I like to paint pictures and, you know, I like to keep it <laughs> simple. So for me, I think I faced a lot of pressures that way because I had tutors telling my mom and dad that, oh, she's not getting good grades in the academic subject. She's only doing well in art. You know, she has to drop out of school. She can't get to university, so on and so forth. So, but I think I'm very grateful because my mom and dad supported me that way. They were like, it's okay. Grades are important, but they're not going to define your kind of, you know, university choice or what you do in the future so I kind of was lucky that way but then I had that pressure from the general public in that sense but yeah interesting and so you went into university into arts yes so I did a foundation that was a pre kind of degree course and then I did a bachelor's and then a master's because of the whole grades issue I wasn't able to apply for a bachelor's directly because I had to have a certain kind of academic obviously you know Great, you've got your A's, your B's, you know, anything below that is a bit of, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah, so for me, that's why I applied for a foundation, a diploma in the UK. And then it was like a one-year arts-based course. So entirely focusing on the creative side of things, the art, designing aspects, etc. And from then on, I then applied for a bachelor's and then a master's. So How is that experience? Like, I don't, I don't have any formal arts training. Yeah. And I always hear kind of a mixed bag of, it was valuable for this reason or that reason. Can you just talk about that experience going through a master's or bachelor's and a master's and maybe reflecting on the person who may be listening who's considering this option as to you know what your thoughts on it. And obviously it'll be, this will be a UK-based uh, reflection, but I wonder if you can just talk about that a bit. Of course. Um, I've heard a lot of things, first of all, that, you know, of course, you don't have to have a master's or a degree to be a good artist. And again, good is a very broad word, as you would know, Mike, <laughs> from our discussions. Mm-hmm. But I would recommend that if you do want to pursue it further in the environment we live in, it is important to do some sort of education in the arts because it adds an extra value, again, to your CV, your skill set, your experience. And coming from the UK, of course, I can speak from that point that it was really draining, really exhausting, because I've had the kind of five consecutive years of education in a row, nonstop. But I think once you get into it, you get the hang of it, just like you get used to anything. Like, you know, if you buy a new toy from the store, you're going to get used to that. You're going to enjoy, you're going to play with it. And arts education is something, it's not like any other educational degree. It's something you would do because you want to do it and you enjoy doing it. And that sounds awful because when you get a BA or a bachelor's, it's like, oh my God, it's like, you know, a master's is really difficult. It's really different because it's a, I did a very practical based course. So that was something which was quite a benefit for me because I know certain um, art courses can be very academic. There's a lot of writing. There's a lot of theory. There's no no practical of things. For anyone who would want to pursue it, I would say you should go for it because the end result is definitely worth it. I mean, my personal experience has been that doing the foundation wasn't as beneficial for me I feel like I could have done without it so I wouldn't recommend someone doing a foundation diploma because it's pretty much like repeating another year of high school so it's if you have the option of not doing a foundation diploma I would suggest not do it and just jump straight into a bachelor's because whatever you learn and this is again really subjective to the UK but whatever you learn in high school can potentially just prepare you for a bachelor's degree straight up front 
But um, I would say go for it because it's just, it's an experience to have. And of course, you don't have to do a master's. You know, it's not like a rule that you have to have to have a master's. You can obviously do perfectly fine and even better without a master's degree. But um, a bachelor's would be good to have just so you can understand the art world from a different perspective and gain that kind of experience and knowledge. So you go through a, a bachelor and then you go in through a master's. Like as you're trying to build yourself creatively, I think this is what I've, I always struggle with is when you're creating the art, um, you know, the, there's obviously a lot of background that you learn about art over over the, um, the millennia, as you know, understanding various movements and things like that. But I'm wondering when you're creating art, like, do, is there a concern that you're producing too much art for your teachers and not for yourself? Do you, does your voice get lost? 100%. I would say that 100%. That is definitely there because when you're in an academic institution, you are somehow conforming to that whole sense of getting good grades, passing the course, and following a certain criteria. The minute someone puts a kind of criteria on you, that's it. You're going to conform to that whether you like it or not, because the goal is to make good art, but good art that's going to suit what someone else wants you to do. If you want to get the grade, if you want to pass. That is the downfall of education, unfortunately, but I think it is something that I have tried to work around a lot because I'm still struggling with it. I mean, when I'm in the studio making work, I can literally hear my tutor's voice in my head. No, don't do that. Have you have you questioned this? Have you questioned that? And I'm just like, oh, good God, not again, you know. But I think one thing, there's a certain liberation in doing this outside of... Because right now I'm in my studio making work. Although I can hear my tutor's voice in my head, at the same time, I'm like, I don't have any grades to worry about anymore. You know, I'm done. I can do what I want. But the self-criticism is then informed by what my tutor's voice saying in my head, because I'm constantly there like, oh, maybe not this, maybe I should put that there, a bit of light there and a bit of, you know, color here. So I think it is a massive battle, but as you grow as an artist and you evolve, you're going to learn to just work with that. And some ways it's really good to have that kind of criticism going on in your head because you start questioning yourself as a creative in ways you wouldn't have done so before. What did you enjoy most about going through, you know, let's say your master's? What type of art, what type of experience? Like, what are your best memories going through that? I think for me, it's a tough one because half of my master's was online because of COVID. So six months of it was in person, six months was online. But in the six months that I was there, I think the independence of the course was really useful because you could kind of just let loose and explore and experiment in the first module, whatever you wanted to do. I mean, I went out and I painted on the um, university building and I was like, okay, you know, creating some large scale installations there. But I think I really enjoyed the liberation that the course gave me and the different kind of skills I learned because part of my practice is about making your own pigments and colors. And that's something I learned on the masters because I would visit lectures and different, you know, tutorials and crits and group sessions where we were taught these kind of you know skills and ways to work obviously at that time I was like oh it's going to be so boring it's going to take a really long time but it's really valuable to have so I think for me the main thing is the independence and the community feel that I got from the masters at the end of it yeah I think of, of all things I think having that access to a network is usually valuable for a lot of uh, people and that's that structure in uh, a university program definitely benefits in, in doing that. Although there are a lot of online courses now that have that kind of community built into it exactly. for the critique component, which is helpful. Yes, for sure. But I'm always a people in person kind of person, <laughs> a bit of a, a mouthful of words there. But I think for me, because I had both the online experience and then the physical world experience, but it was with the same group of people. 
So I would obviously prefer going back anytime, you know, meeting them, giving them a hug, kind of saying hi to them, hearing their voice, you know, in, in the flesh. But I think the online world is doing pretty good in terms of creating that community feel because it's not easy to adapt online. I mean, you've got the thing where you can't unmute yourself or you forget to turn off your video and all those kind of... Right. <laughs> but I think it's a good involvement, but I would choose the physical world over the online any day. Yeah, I think it's... Uh... I mean, there'll be a time when it becomes a bit more normal for us, but it is a challenge for so many people right now trying to orient the online world. Through your uh, degrees, were you still working on your own creations? No, not at all. I mean, through my degree, I was very much focused on making work that would suit the specific degree criteria. And the worst was when I got... um. I did try to mix and match what I really wanted to do with what the tutors or the university want me to do, but it was really difficult because then... You had this thing, the practical work would do really well, but then the theoretical work, putting your art in the context and generalizing it, all those kind of, you know, guys get the gist of it, the essay writings and all that really took a toll on me. But I think once my, you know, my degree was over, that's when I really kind of expressed myself fully as an artist. And I'm still doing that. I mean, you can never fully express yourself. You have to keep on doing it over and over again. But yeah, I think I never made, there wasn't a time when I made any work that was for myself during the degree. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't necessarily something I would want to do again. Right. And at this point, do you feel like you've found your voice creatively? I have in comparison to what it was a year ago when I was doing my degree, but I'm still yet to discover it because I don't think we can ever find our creative voice 100%. I think that we are on a journey as artists or creatives to find that voice. And we'll never find it, which is sad, but it's also entertaining because, you know, you're going to learn so many new things about yourselves. I mean, I I would never have considered, for example, going outside and using the natural, you know, world or using natural materials to make colors at first. I was very, I was a very lazy artist. I like to sit there, get the colors in hand, and just, you know, paint with the, what I had. But I think I am finding my voice and it's getting much better compared to what it was, but I'm still not there yet. I think we're always going to have that kind of an answer, no matter where we are. Yeah, I think. I agree. I think it's always evolving as we're evolving and uh, exposed to different things. And I want to get into the natural materials a bit later as well, because I think that was when I saw that you were doing that, it was like, this is an exciting conversation. Of course. I want to explore that a little bit. So what is your chosen medium now that you like to work with? Is it, is it oils? Is it drawing? Is it pastels? Like, uh, What's your chosen kind of so uh, material of choice? I love oils. I used to work with acrylics, but I think there's the texture, the kind of thick almost gooey feeling you've got to oils. I really enjoy that. And I work a lot. I've started working a lot with them. Um, chopped pastels and charcoal. Again, to reference the sense of, you know, history and so on and so forth. But yeah, I go, a lot of meters I work with is oil, charcoal and pastels now recently. Awesome. And have you done any digital work? I have actually, yeah. And um, I've got them on my website, which I'll probably mention in the coming kind of conversation. But um, I've done a few digital paintings. One of them was inspired by, again, COVID-19, which I know sounds like, what? Okay, <laughs> why would you want to do a All painting right. on COVID-19? But I was stuck inside, um, you know, in the student accommodation and student halls are not the best place to be stuck in during covid but I was stuck inside, you know, my window didn't open properly. And I just saw this one really boring street every day for six months. And I was like, you know what, let me just make a painting of that street because the the literally the mundaneness of that street and how boring it was inspired me to paint. I was like, I need to kind of encapsulate that in my work. So I created the painting by hand, but then I kind of recreated that painting 
using Photoshop and InDesign. And I kind of, you know, again, I created an abstract essence to the piece of work through the digital software, which I think then created an interesting topic on, you know, digital materiality and COVID and how the world is going digital. So there goes my self-critical <laughs> right. skills there. But yeah, I've done quite a fair few digital paintings, but I would not want to go back to it. I'm I'm a very physical, hands-on person when it comes to art. And like, who was who would you consider your inspiration now uh, with regard to like oil painting and, and that kind of stuff? What drives you forward? What, uh, what artist do you feel that, uh, you know, when you see their work, whether they're on Instagram now or... <laughs> They were 300 years ago who kind of uh who do you really enjoy i i mean there's no specific person i enjoy particularly because my kind of specialty now is in cave paintings so i really do enjoy cave art and you know rock paintings and there was one particular one i think it was in france so forgive my pronunciation but the lascaux caves in france and i was scheduled to go visit them in person but because of covid the trip got cancelled so I I spoke to one of the, um, I had interviewed during my master's program. Um, I think his name was Robert Wallace and he was in the UK. And he was kind of, you know, he worked in collaboration to create a digital recreation of these caves in for a gallery or museum when he was in France. And I got a chance to interview him. And I think speaking to him and understanding how, again, you know, he had to, this was before the pandemic. So he had to recreate a digital version of the actual caves because the caves were getting destroyed due to the kind of, you know, obviously the carbon dioxide and the kind of air pollution, etc. So going back to the point about digital work, I think it's, it's interesting because for me, after speaking to Robert, it was like almost putting myself back in time and seeing history through his eyes, if that makes sense. But mm-hmm. he's not an artist, but he's more of a, like a research and art historian, which again, you can argue they are creators at the end of the day, but Speaking to him really kind of got me interested in the kind of history of art in that sense and how it started, really. So that's where my inspiration came from. That's awesome. And so this brings us to the next topic, which is you seem to enjoy colors. And this, you know, that will then lead into the creation of some of the pigments and things like that. So what is it about pigments and and palettes and, and like, what has you thinking of this? And, you know, you've referenced the past and, and in reflecting on pieces artwork that was done with these original pigments and so what is it about this that really has attracted you to not only working with them but creating them i think for me it's always been again this sounds really morbid but i'm gonna say it anyways it's been the dirty <laughs> the kind of the physical feel of it like when i would go to a museum i couldn't care about what jewelry they used to wear. i couldn't care about the polished pristine clear kind of plates and cutlery they used to use i've always been very fascinated with the dirty, the broken, the almost destructed aspect of things, because I feel like they have more charm to them. The more imperfect things, I guess you can say, have more of a charm to them. And I think for me, the reason I got into the whole pigments and the fascination around pigments was because it was about finding a reason why. And now I'll say a bit about that, because again, in the academic institution, there's this whole pressure on contemporary art, you know, political side, the the feminist aspect, etc., the social aspect. I think for me, I've been very much interested in this stuff exists, yes, and I'm all for like political movements, but there's not much about the actual essence of painting and art in contemporary art. That was a repetition, but in contemporary, in the contemporary <laughs> art world, there's not an, there's not much of an essence that touches upon the historic aspect of art. And it's really interesting for me because the history of art is something 
once we understand it, we can literally see how things are done today. And you know, you can have so many different contemporary takes on it, but at the end of the day, we're connected to our past from a certain way. And I use art as a way to kind of, you know, jump into that. And I think I chose pigments particularly because earth colors is, is what I um, often work with. Earth colors were the very first colors used by, again, cavemen about 28,000 years ago. And I think just knowing that these colors have been in existence for way before even cavemen existed, because we only know of these colors since when people have been able to write about them. I'm sure they existed way before, you know, we could have humanity even evolved. So I think for me, again, going back into the ground, the earth, everything around us has its own meaning, but going back into the ground and the earth really connects you to a deep ancestral background, I guess. And for me, it's not very ancestral. It's more, again, about the physicality and the materials that create that historic essence. So I think that's why I got into pigment making. And the way I make pigments today is very much similar to how it was made 2,800 years ago, for example. So, um, wow. yeah, that's something I try and I'm kind of reenacting history, but from the modern day to kind of create that point that, look, this doesn't exist and we need more of this today. So can you talk a little bit about this pigment work that you're doing? Because I, I didn't even really think about that, right? I just, I order my paints online. Exactly. And, you know, I've tried, um, I did a little sketch some time ago with, with coffee. And I thought that was, I was being really kind of connected <laughs> to the world in doing that. Of course. But when I see some of the work that you've posted on Instagram, it was like, wow, this is, um, this is quite involved. So can you talk a little bit about how, how do you go about doing this? And how do you, like, what material are you using and what, how do you distill this down to making your own paint? Of course. Um, so it is, first of all, it is quite a boring and tedious process. It takes about one hour just to make one color because of the process involved. And I think it comes down to the grinding, the mixing, the different chemicals you need to add in. But before we jump into that, um, I got into the pigments because, again, like you mentioned, Mike, about, you know, buying colors from the store. I would always buy, like, you know, the earth colors. You've got yellow ochre, you've got raw sienna, so on and so forth. And then my brain instantly went, again, my self-critical <laughs> mindset just went, hang on, every color that I use has a meaning. I mean, I'm making a painting that has a meaning, but the tools used to make the painting have a meaning in itself. So that's how I got into, you know, making my own colors because I'm very much about how the process can reflect the, the context and how you see the work. So whatever I say, you should be able to see it in my work is what I aim to do. So I think for me, the yellow ochre and the earth colors, for example, ochres and siennas, I went into a really technical scientific research into, you know, how they're made and the chemical aspects of it, but I don't want to kind of bore <laughs> people with the science of it. But I think for me, the process, so you use something just quickly, you use something called a glass muller and a glass muller is basically this circular little device with a little bulb handle, which you have to use as a grinder basically to grind the pigment down. Because when you get the pigment, it comes in a powdered form. It's not a paste you get and you can get this in any art store. You get powdered pigments and the powdered pigments need to be grinded down into a paste, just like you wouldn't mix anything in a cookie class, for example, you know, you make your cookies or your cake, you mix up the batter together. And it's pretty much the same as making your pigments. So if you're going to add your flour and your eggs, you're going to add. Well, you people do add eggs to pigment, by the way, to bind them. So there goes <laughs> a cooking class. So you will be adding um, the chemicals to the powder turpentine and i know turpentine is obviously not safe and it's the fumes etc but 
You can use any substitute that's healthy or any more environment friendly one. I use an odorless based uh, mineral spirit. So you can put turpentine, something called cold pressed linseed oil. And now there's different types of linseed oils. And the reason I use cold pressed linseed oil is because it doesn't yellow. Other linseed oils, if you get them, um, are if you see them in the bottle, they have a yellowish kind of color to them. And if you add them to the pigments, and this is again, maybe 30 years down the line, your paints are gonna become quite yellow and they're gonna have a certain tint to them. And I mean, that may be interesting, but not the best if you wanna get a painting to hang in someone's <laughs> right. apartment or house. But cold pressed linseed oil, it doesn't yellow, it is clear, and it's gonna give the raw color of the pigment itself. And you add these three things. So turpentine, you've got the pigment and you've got your linseed oil. And you just use that glass muller to grind them down into a paste. And you keep on mixing and grinding until it becomes a thick paste, just like you would do if you're making a cake or cookies, for example. So it's pretty much the same process. It is quite complicated, but it's quite fun to do once you get the hang of it. The textures, the kind of the sound, it's really satisfying. <laughs> and do you have a... A wide variety? Or are you trying to keep to earth tones again? Like, are you, you know, people talk about the Zorn palette, which is, you know, quite a limited palette. Are you trying to, once again, contain yours to things like, uh, you know, raw sienna and yellow ochre, whatever the case? I am including a lot of earth colors, particularly, because, again, it's linking back to the cave painting aspect of things. And I think they were the first colors used. And again, there are, I think there's about three to four hundred different earth colors or more that are existing in the world today. But I'm right now, because I've just started making my own pigments as of a month or so ago, I'm sticking to earth colors just to kind of reiterate that fact that, you know, they have their own meaning in the art world before we kind of add a new spin to it. But earth colors are the way. Are you trying to, when you do a piece now, are you restricting it to just pigments you've made? Um, No, I'm not restricting it to only pigments I've made because another part of my, I'm glad you asked this, Mike, another part of my practice is very much about looking at how categorizing certain colors can change how we see them in the artwork. And to break that down a little, because that's a mouthful. Um, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So by categorizing, I mean, if you go to an art shop and you pick out, let's say, lemon yellow, and this is in acrylics, oils, anything. So lemon yellow, or you've got yellow ochre, um, raw sienna, for example. They've got a certain name to them. And as artists or creatives, whoever use these colors would instantly visualize what they look like. Because if you see, if I say the word yellow ochre right now, I can guarantee that any of you will probably think of something that's quite brownish and almost like a yellow tint to it, but quite earthy. It has quite a certain feel to it when you say the name. And I think... For me, the reason I mix my own colors and the kind of store-bought oil colors, as I like to call them, is to change the visual perception that people have. So if you're going to see a handmade pigment, because in my work, if you look at them later on, when you guys do get a chance, if you look at the handmade pigments that I've got compared to the ones from the store, and you look at them together, you can see the difference in what is man-made and what is still man-made, but very natural. Because the yellow ochre, if you get straight from the ground right now, has more of a deep brown red color to it, but the yellow ochre that you find in the store is more on the yellow side to it. So I think the reason I use oil colors from the store as well as my own pigments is to create that kind of comparison and contrast that even though we are using colors from the tube, it's still connecting us to the past because of how they look and how they feel and how they kind of just create a certain essence in your mind when you hear the names of these colors. Hope that made sense. <laughs> yes. I just, I think it's really compelling. I never really thought that much about color until I've heard you talk about it and 
seen you on your Instagram, uh, you know, posting images around this as well. And I, I just found it interesting that you're breaking it down to the basics and trying to build in, like, so when you're involving this in your painting, are you doing it for yourself or are you doing it for others? I'm doing it for myself and for others because I want others to see what I'm seeing or not, well, not see what I'm seeing, but kind of see what I'm trying to say because my work has become very much about people's perceptions and how they perceive artwork. So that is got an aspect to the audience in there, but it's something that I want people to see. So it's more of, it's more of a 50, 50, I'd say a balance between the two. Have you allowed other people to try some of your pigments or your paint? No, not yet. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> not yet. Hopefully though, I'm actually thinking of creating once I get enough colors made, Maybe actually, you know, let people try them out and kind of compare and contrast themselves because it might be interesting to see what they actually think of it. Yeah, I think it would be uh, interesting uh, to see a whole line of paint come from you in the future. Exactly. Be, <laughs> a yes. whole new paint company. <laughs> so can I just talk about cave paintings for a bit? So when we look at the palettes they had available, what what was the popular kind of... Do we know what the palette was? I mean, was it the... Uh, was it a modified version of the Zorn palette? Was there... Uh, you know, I assume something like blues and that was probably lacking, but I'm just wondering what what palette were they using? What colors did they have access to uh, 28,000 years ago? So they had access to anything that they could find at the time. And obviously they only had access to what they found, but I'm sure if they spent some more time, they would have found loads more colors. But I think, again, the cave paintings that we see today only have a fragment of the colors that they probably had back in the day. But the colors that they had were a lot of red ochres, yellow ochres, charcoal, which was obviously from the fires, a bit of gray, which was from the ash from the fires, and a lot of the browns, which is again from the rocks and the sand that they had at the time. And again, so it links very nicely to the earth colors and my interest in earth colors, because I'm using whatever I can find in the earth. I mean, I'm not digging straight into planet earth and destroying <laughs> a world, but I'm pretty much kind of... I'm like a cave woman, I'd say, because I am literally finding the same colors, not same, but similar colors that they had, which was very much about the blacks, the browns, and a bit of the reds and yellows. Would you recommend an artist exploring this idea of creating their own paint? I would definitely, because once you start doing it, you're going to really want to research it and understand it. Because for me, once I've started making my own colors, I can't see the colors in the store the same way anymore. So I've had that thing that, oh, okay, this is not the color I want. So I'm always more inclined to kind of using my own handmade paints than the ones from the store now. You're going to have a total twist on, you know, how you perceive colors if you make your own paints. So I do recommend it. Try that out. Of course. <laughs> so I wanted to go into uh, talking a bit about social media. And uh, this, the timing's really interesting. By the time this episode comes out, I don't know if things will be different or not. But right now, your Instagram is now inaccessible. Yes. <laughs> and I thought that was perfect timing so thank you for <laughs> creating this problem for yourself just in advance of the podcast but can you explain what happened so i think oh, i had a proper panic attack i did yesterday <laughs> when this happened <laughs> i think because so i'm sure most people who do have a proper business account or not account they do download um, i mean it depends they download an unfollowers app so i had an app from instagram called unfollowers that's the name of the app and it helps you track you know who follows you, who unfollows you, who's engaging with your posts, comments, etc. I mean, not to see who unfollows me. Of course, whoever unfollows me will not, <laughs> you know, so I get right. to know. But I think what I did wrong was, and I had no idea about this, so I'd love to share this with you guys, that 
when you see who unfollows you on the tracking app, do not click on that account and unfollow the account from the app because that's then going to tell Instagram that it's a spam account or a third party kind of a site. If you want to unfollow the person, just use the tracking app as a way to see who unfollowed you, log back into Instagram and then type their username in and unfollow them through Instagram because that is done directly through Instagram. So Instagram says it's legit that way. Well, I didn't realize that. So I kept on unfollowing people through the tracking app and that's it. Instagram blocked my account and they went, we, and they told me to take a picture of myself, write the security code down by hand and send it like a mugshot photo to them via email. So in order to avoid that kind of a hassle, <laughs> I would right. recommend, yeah, just kind of be careful of these apps because they can be spams or kind of just, you know, log in through Instagram and unfollow people directly. Don't use any other third party site to, you know. Do you think it's like, it makes me nervous that a lot of people seem to rely heavily on Instagram, right? On their followers, on their content. And then in the blink of an eye, people are in your position where it's completely cut off. Do you think that we're wise in investing so much time and effort only in one or two platforms? versus, you know, developing a mailing list or things like that. What's your commentary on that? I think I would agree. It is wise. I mean, from my experience, do invest if you can in different platforms because you need to have, it's just like there's a virus on a computer. You have to have a backup at the end of the day so you don't lose your stuff. And I think because so much effort, it took me five years to build the Instagram account. So that's just like hit the heart right there. But I think it is definitely valid to have a backup you don't have to be as like you know regular with posting on all different platforms as you are on one but it's good to have options so if something goes wrong you know that some of your data is stored as well or your hard work is stored somewhere else and you can kind of resume posting on that like i do have a tiktok and a facebook but i never posted on them so i'm regretting that i should have started doing something on them so at least you know it wasn't a <laughs> slap in the face <laughs> right do you work at catering your Instagram profile, your feed? Um, do you spend a lot of effort there? Do you think about what you're posting? Do you post, for example, a lot of work in progress or do you focus on finished works? How do you approach your so Instagram? I kind of, so every, every social media has an algorithm that you have to kind of go by if you want to engage your audience. Like, you know, if there's a lot of people posting videos about their work for, let's say, a week or two, I would then get, okay, let me start kind of conforming to that algorithm Again, just a beat that Instagram would have so you can just keep up to date with what's going on. I have, yes, I have curated my feed quite specifically to only art, for example, because I've got a personal account and an art account separate because I like to keep my personal life separate and my creative practice separate. They're two separate, you know, personalities and people. But um, I have curated my art account in such a way that I include a lot of, and this is only in the last year or so that I started doing it. So I include a lot of progress shots a lot of um, live videos, for example, where people can see my face, um, pictures with my artwork so people can engage and see the kind of, you know, the face behind the work so they can see who it is. It's not just a random, here's a painting, here's a picture, enjoy kind of a scene. And I've also mm -hmm. started including a lot of distant shots. And by distant shots, I mean shots which let the audience see the size of the work in relation to the space that it's presented in. Because I got a lot that a lot of people have seen my work, but they don't know the size. And you can't estimate a size on the screen. Obviously, it's difficult. So, you know, standing next to your work or taking a picture with your work or having the work on the wall next to other artworks is a great way to kind of create a sense of space around it. That Okay, it's about this big or it's, you know, it's quite huge or it's quite small. 
And that works really well if you want to sell your work as well, because then obviously the customer can see what it's going to look like in their house. Roughly imagine the size and kind of you know, picture that. But I have curated it in that way. Exactly. And I would recommend, of course, you know, you guys don't have to put pictures of yourself on Instagram, but it is a nice way because, again, going back to the likes and followers, not in a sense that, oh, look at how many likes you'll get, in the sense that if you put a picture of your work as an artist, people engage with that more than they would if it's just the artwork because they can see a relationship. They can see a piece of the artist in the work then. So I'd recommend kind of creating a space which is almost a reflection of yourself. Yeah, it's social media. There's it, it's hard, right, to uh, to balance that against being productive and uh, you know trying to have a certain personality to it. But for some, you know, injecting too much of yourself into that is is uh, something that people are concerned with. I don't, for example, tend to post a lot of pictures of myself. I tend to focus on the art and the thing, the things that I'm drawing. So, but I wanted to ask you about you know the social media app that kind of connected us and where I found you, and that's on Clubhouse. Of course. And so maybe I'll, like, I, I've mentioned it in a couple of other episodes, but I really haven't explained it in detail. So maybe I'll, I'll follow your lead. And if you can just explain to the listener what Clubhouse is, and then we can go into uh, that journey a little bit. Of course. So I think Clubhouse, I only recently joined Clubhouse a month, a month and a half ago, I'd say. And that was because my husband, obviously, there was the thing you can invite someone and then join Clubhouse. My, my account was blank for literally three weeks, and I had no idea what to do with it. But then I just you know, jumped into this room and I saw that people could raise their hands, they can chime in, they can kind of, you know, have a discussion. So long story short, Clubhouse is kind of like a platform for me at least where you can network, but through audio, where you can listen to people, you can engage in discussions, you can communicate with people. So it's like LinkedIn, but an audio version of LinkedIn, where people actually engage in discussions, you know, you've got, I mean, some people use it as podcasts as well. Some people use it as, you know, interviews some people use it as a way to sell their artworks i think clubhouse for me has been a great platform because hence the name it's literally a club where you can almost go inside through your voice and network with people so i think it's been really beneficial that way it's really uh it does come down to the voice so you don't get a lot of i mean you have trolls which pop into a channel and they'll scream and (laughs) then they'll leave or whatever the case but it is really interesting because there's no so, and once again, this is an app that's only available to iOS users, and it's right now invitation only because it's still in beta. Yes. And when you create the app, it it, it ties it to your cell phone number, uh, but you can install or run it on an iPad. I do that because then I can leverage my better microphone. But when you create the app, you can attribute kind of a, a an avatar to yourself, an image that represents you, and then you have an opportunity to write a profile, but you can't the only thing you can link to are Twitter and Instagram. So you can embed links in your profile, but you can't link out to them. So what typically happens is people will see, oh, it's, hi, Mike, uh, welcome to the room. And then people will click on your profile and they'll check out your Instagram is normally the, the process. So I think it's really, it almost feels like Clubhouse is intended for artists, whether it's visual artists. I mean, there's a lot of uh, music um, artists as well. It's amazing to see some of the celebrities that are on there. Um, Usher Usher had a, a room yesterday, oh, wow. which was kind of <laughs> cool. And the day before that, Ashton Kutcher had a had a room as well. So to, to, to see these people on there and using it that way is kind of interesting. Now, as you said, you can put your hand up and move to the stage and have a conversation with everyone on stage. But if the moderators who run that room choose not to, you have to sit in the audience, but you can still listen. Exactly. But I think what's really challenging with it is is it's it there's a real sense of fomo this fear of missing out 
around Clubhouse because nothing, well, you're not supposed to, once again, it's maybe flexible, but there's no recordings around this. So if you miss a discussion or you miss a specific room around a topic, it's, 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 it's gone. In the past. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's history. It. <laughs> it is history. And a lot of the rooms do a good job of scheduling things or at least having a schedule up there and you can subscribe for a notification for a scheduled item and a scheduled talk, which I think is great. And you've been doing, and what I think is really powerful about and what pulled me to you is the ones that you're doing now. And you host it with two other people. Yes. So Stefano and Roberta. And we've got actually a new um, moderator who's just joined called Chiara. So she's a new kind of addition to our club. That's awesome. Yes. And what I really like about yours, and do you have a set schedule for that now? Uh, so I've, as of last week, we kind of decided because uh, Stefano, the other moderator, runs a club as well. So I've got a schedule, which I'm still working on, and I'm going to publish it on the kind of um, description for the club in a few days, perhaps. Yeah, it's going to be every alternate day of the week. Okay. And what I think is really great about yours is the questions that you pose about, and, and you've had a few of them, and it was so interesting. And so refresh me on some of the questions you've done recently, but you had asked about, you know, are, what is it, are artists necessary? And what I think is so good about that is everyone can access these questions. It makes sense to most every artist. But the way each artist unpacks the question uh, provides for an interesting answer. And so I think the discussions and the way that you you and the other moderators manage the rooms are really great because everybody has a chance to speak and voice their thoughts. But I think regardless of the level of creativity that you're at, whether you're just coming into it for the first time at 10 or 12 years old or for the first time at you know, 60, 70 years old and you're on Clubhouse, it really allows you to kind of consume this information from so many levels and be able to contribute in a way that is safe. So I think the way that you manage those rooms and the questions you have are, are really insightful. And you know, you had one about galleries, which I think was interesting, and, and art historians, which I didn't really think about so much. Uh, I tend not to spend a lot of time thinking about galleries, but to hear that perspective was good. And so I think what you're doing on Clubhouse is, is special. And, Thank you. Uh, awesome. And so if people are on there, I mean, and so I'll, I'll provide links in the show notes to all of this, and awesome. we'll try to point people to the right location. How can people kind of find the room that you're in? I think with Clubhouse, the thing is, it's, it's pretty much like Instagram in that sense. If you've got a certain number of followers, if you're really popular, it's going to come up quite easily if you just type the first two words in. But because we're still growing, um, if you do go to my profile, um, it's again, Sunaina Bakshi is my name on Clubhouse. If you just find me and if you scroll down um, below my description, you can see that the first club that I'm a member of, because I'm the founder of the club, is The Artist mm -hmm. Cove. That's the club's name, The Artist Cove. And it's a little brown icon with, you know, a white kind of title in the middle. And it's going to be the first thing you see because I am the founder of the club. So if you want to find it quicker, visit my profile on Clubhouse, Sunaina Bakshi. And then just scroll all the way to the end of the page and you'll see the Artist Cove. And just click on that and you can go to the club directly. And for people who aren't on Clubhouse and have the opportunity to get access, it's, you know, they do this kind of process at the beginning where they ask you what your interests are. And so as long as you... And you can modify those over time as well, because I had, I forget what I clicked on, and then I started seeing all these uh, coaching, life-changing <laughs> activities, um, and I just didn't want to see that, so I just modified my interests. But exactly. I suspect this will start to surface. And the more people you follow, it does kind of cater what they call the hallway, which yes. is what a Clubhouse thinks you may be interested in. Exactly. I, th I think it's a really, I think it's a compelling app, just because 
I think it evens the playing field in some ways, but it also allows people to highlight what they're good at. And it's so funny because you'll be in a room and you'll be on stage with, you know, five and 20 people. And all of a sudden you hear somebody say, oh, Sanaina, I'm just checking out your profile. It's awesome what you're doing. And it's like, ah, <laughs> oh, I was just listening. <laughs> and exactly. so it's, yeah, it's very positive. It's very encouraging. I've, you know, I've heard people that have had challenges with under other individuals in Clubhouse. I wouldn't say like the stuff I've heard isn't necessarily abusive or anything that like that, but it was just people being, you know, not the best version of themselves. I agree. And so, that. yeah, I, I think that it's largely a very positive and safe environment. I would agree it is. And I think I've had that experience as well that you were mentioning about briefly because um, I'm not going to obviously name names, but I did join a club initially when I first came to Clubhouse. And there is this hierarchy of the moderators and the audience. Now, I know it's not obviously intentional, but there is this thing that certain moderators feel like when they... And just quickly, a moderator of the club is basically someone who runs the club and is in charge of kind of keeping the conversation going, asking questions and kind of, you know, keeping the stage. It's basically like a main speaker and the kind of you moderate the club basically you know so i've had experience where there have been certain moderators where there's this sense of entitlement that okay we are the moderators and again the reason why i do this in my club stefano me and qr and roberta do this in the club is because we genuinely believe that everyone has an equal chance to speak and there have been clubs in clubhouse where i mean i was in one there was around two three hundred people in the room and it was a debate and I had to wait literally an hour and a half, two hours to speak in that club. And I only got a minute. I said a sentence and they were like, okay, that's great. Thank you. And they moved on. So I think there is a certain hierarchy that if you're not a moderator, it's like, well, mm, you're not as good as us. But that is, again, very subjective. And that's something I, I wanted to, we wanted to change when Stefano and I created the clubs that we have. Yeah, it, it can be quite challenging because you... As you say, the moderator has power to mute people. Exactly. I've seen that happen. And there's reasons why you would want to do that. So I think it's a, it's a power they need to have. But it, it can be problematic if you decide to mute somebody just because you don't like what they're saying. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then they can move people from the stage to the audience. So when you're in the audience, you cannot speak anymore. You can just listen. Exactly. So it, it can be problematic. I feel like there's still a lot of growing pains around Clubhouse and how people use it. I, I like the way you manage the rooms because... It's more reflective of what I think a moderator should be doing, and that is, you know, cr creating um, maybe an insightful topic and ensuring the conversation keeps moving and maybe absolving themselves of content and relying on the audience for that. And I think that's really uh, compelling because you do get into rooms where moderators end up contributing most of the content and it is like a chat amongst friends. And, exactly. and, and that's great, right? But... Um, I think that some moderators, and this is what ends up happening, is the moderators end up being the accounts that people look at if they're in the audience. And ultimately, you know, you end up with more followers on Instagram because you're a moderator. And exactly. the next thing I wanted to ask you about is now there are, I think it's 60,000 accounts in the U.S. that can receive payment. Wow. So you, you can actually send money to somebody in Clubhouse wow. as a tip. And... It's only available to American accounts, and I think they've they started with six thousand. They're rolling out it to sixty thousand, and there's going to be more in the future. But uh, this opportunity, where and I've seen it, you can go into some accounts. So when you view someone's profile who has this turned on, there's a send money feature. Oh wow! And so if I sent let's say twenty dollars to you, you get twenty dollars. Wow. I may have to pay twenty one dollars because I'm paying a That's processing cheap. fee because they use Stripe. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> how this is going to change things. I brought this up in another room. Like, mm -hmm. I wonder, 
Are people going to feel that they have to up their content? Are they going to, are creatives going to feel that, well, I turned it on for myself because I could, but I haven't seen any money in a month. So what's the strategy for a creative then to think about how do I generate more money? Do I need to go into a bunch of rooms and, and speak for the sake of speaking so that I get noticed? Is there going to be more push to be a moderator because moderators get more attention? So I have a little bit of a concern. I do think that artists need to get paid more. So I, I encourage this, but I don't know what your thoughts are about this initiative and being able to receive money. I've heard about this on Clubhouse and I think it can get two ways. It can be problematic problematic and it can be beneficial for some problematic in the sense that you know i think you mentioned mike that there's going to be this extra competitive behavior that you're going to have to go up there speak as much as you can kind of you know and a pressure that you're going to have to say something valid you know which people will agree on because another thing that i forgot to mention people can clap on clubhouse in the sense they keep on typing their mic the unmute button so it's like they're clapping so it's like you're unmuting yourself but yeah so i think there's a sense of it is problematic because there is going to be a competition that people are going to want to make their own clubs. I know a lot of people have started doing that. They've started making their own clubs just to be a moderator. Because if you own a club, you are automatically a moderator. And they're inviting people. They're having conversations. I mean, I'm not judging, but some conversations are just, you know, they're just there for the sake of trying to spark a discussion. or They're just there because they want to be like everyone else. It is going to be problematic that way. But I think I agree. Artists need more money. But... I guess then the question comes out. My questions again, Mike. <laughs> I guess then the <laughs> questions come down to, is the goal to collect more money or make more money? Because if your goal is to collect money from any possible way, that's not going to benefit you in the future because if you're just going to make money for the sake of it, because you know there's this kind of new trend or a new competition, and if you're not going to really get anything out of it, because at the end of the day, money is like a value, it's a reward. You, you make a really good painting, you make a good piece of art, people buy it because they enjoy it. They're rewarding you with that token, that piece of little paper with, <laughs> you know, the Queen's picture on it. But I guess there's a question that artists will have to ask themselves and navigate through themselves. Because for me personally, if let's say, you know, if Mike were to obviously give me $20, for example, as a reward, it would be a reward. It wouldn't be like, oh, okay, I can make more money. Of course, there will be an aspect to it where people can't deny. They will be like, okay, I can make easy money but then is easy money the way to actually progress as an artist is my question because that's something I think I haven't experienced myself but I would say that be careful how you would earn the money and how you would make it if you want to use clubhouses that way if it does get popular and you know everyone can then access the pay feature I would say that watch and learn and listen to how people are doing it understand the trend and then jump into it before just like oh my god okay I can make money let me go in open a room and you know but I would be just think smart would be my kind of suggestion so one of the challenges now with clubhouse is if I wanted to talk about a piece of art that I'm working on the only way that I can share it I shouldn't say the only way the best way that I can share it and this isn't a great way is I change my profile picture to the piece that I'm working on so you see this tiny little thumbnail you can click on it it goes a little bit larger or I tell you to go to my Instagram and, and go down to the third row, uh, the one in the middle. But do you think that's holding things back? What do you think the clubhouse, and so this is kind of a, maybe I'm setting up the question, the answer a little bit here, but what do you think clubhouse can do for artists next that would make a difference? I think that is obviously downfall, and I've had that many times because personally for me, for example, when I'm trying to show my work, 
I'm all about the physicality of color. And it's like, oh, look at this pretty color on the screen. And again, when you see color on the screen, it's not the same as what you see in real life. So there's that whole dialogue there. But it is problematic. But I think I was in a room yesterday and um, called the Global Art Exhibition. And a question popped up in that room about whether, you know, these online, because on Clubhouse, you can have online exhibitions, change your profile picture and you kind of share a piece of art. I hope, and I really hope this works out, is that in the future, Clubhouse can create such a network and people grow together that perhaps, you know, let's say Mike and I, for example, post-pandemic can get together and organize a physical show. So I think that way it's going to be interesting because you're going to get the essence of a creative and an artist through Clubhouse and Instagram. But the actual personal relationship in terms of a creative relationship will be built if you take that network further. Like, you know, beyond Clubhouse and you're like, oh, hey, you know, and this is, again, a post-pandemic world. Hey, you know, I was thinking let's organize a show together or let's, you know, like Mike and I are doing, having a podcast together. So I think Clubhouse is a good platform to elevate networks and connections, but you can't use it as a platform to create online shows because I think there's that restriction of seeing it on the screen. It's not convenient. And I think people would really enjoy wanting to, go in person and engage with the work and see the actual artist face rather than a picture of the artwork and not knowing what's going on. So I would say it's a way to kind of build further relationships in the real world, I'd say. Yeah, I, I agree. Like I think, you know, I've gained, I'm going to say 250 followers maybe as a clubhouse. Exactly, yeah. And I think that's powerful, but these aren't necessarily customers, but opportunities. Exactly. Opportunities for growth and collaboration. And so, as you say, I think if you're looking at it that way, there's great opportunity in Clubhouse being able to connect you to people and to um, types of art. And I've, you know, connected with musicians and we've, you know, it's just, there's so many things spinning around my head now about uh, collaborations and opportunities. And, you know, there's a lot of talk of NFTs on Clubhouse as well. So it's, it's not necessarily that you're reaching your customers, but you're going to be expanding your network. Exactly. And, uh, I think there's huge value in that. It's not necess- It may fall into a business strategy, but a business strategy is not being on Clubhouse. Like that, That's exactly. not the strategy. I'd agree. Yeah. I mean, I know some people have tried to use it that way. Like you've got auction rooms where you can kind of, same thing. I mean, I find it quite, it's hilarious, really. You change your picture and you're like, oh, this much is for $300. And it's like, well, we can't actually... <laughs> you know right. see the work i mean i mean i personally as a collector would not want to buy a piece of work seeing a little profile picture of someone but you never know but i think clubhouse is right now because it's quite a new platform people are trying to find again a certain algorithm to it and what works and there'll be this one person who will do something and it'll be like oh okay and everyone's just gonna follow on and you know that's gonna be the kind of algorithm to it but i think so far Going back to the followers thing, it's been great in terms of expanding my practice to a larger audience. But I know a lot of people have had a downfall where a lot of followers, they've gotten kind of hungry for it now because they know the second they speak in a room, you're going to get at least seven or eight new followers on Instagram. And if you do this every day, you're going to, I mean, you're doing pretty good with your followers. So I think there is that aspect where a lot of people think that they just follow for the sake of following. I mean, this sounds awful, but I'm very selective because I like to follow, again, I curate my feed in such a way that I like to follow people who I've spoken to, engaged with. Like, I'm following Mike now on Instagram because (laughs) (laughs) I know I kind of know him in that sense. So I think it's something to remember that if you do join Clubhouse, it's a great way to network, but don't just follow people for the sake of 
following. Follow them if you're going to learn something or get something from them, I'd say. It sounds awful, but it's, it's something you have to do if you want to kind of build that connection in the future. Yeah, I think that um, it is about building that network, that opportunity. And, you know, you can follow somebody on Clubhouse and it's really not... I mean, it's, it's one thing to follow them on Clubhouse. It's another thing to follow their account on exactly. Instagram or their account on Twitter. So you can separate the two as well. Exactly. But I would agree. Like, as, you're right. As soon as you speak, you may get a few new followers, but they may not be the followers that you would want to follow. And so, and it's okay for that, right? And and keep in mind too, the more people you follow, the more the algorithm is probably going to evolve over time. Exactly. Too. And the things, the rooms that you see in your hallway, which is the list of rooms that are happening right now, are a reflection of those people so that your followers are in the rooms in the hallway. So if, you know, I, I followed a bunch of people talking about podcasts. Yeah. And so half of my rooms now in the hallway wow. are podcasts. So it's now like, I, 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 I'm interested, but I'm not that interested. <laughs> so now I've got I've to trim that feed a little bit by unfollowing these people. And it's interesting you mentioned that because you can then see. So and another thing on Clubhouse, whichever room you enter, your followers will get a notification. So like if Mike entered a room on podcast, I would get a notification that, oh, you know, Mike is speaking and so on and so forth. And so you need to be very mindful about the rooms you're entering because I've got notifications from followers who've not been entering the most appropriate rooms. And you can get the notification and you, it comes up on your screen. And if it comes up on your screen, and even if you click on it, your followers get the notification. So it's like a chain reaction. So I'd be careful and cautious of the rooms you do decide to. <laughs> well, and I would recommend what I've done, which is turn off notifications. Yeah. So I only get them when I'm in the app. So okay. if I'm, and so this is an interesting thing. So if you and I are having a conversation in a room and I know somebody who is online and they're in another room and it's like, let me just ping in, you know, Stefano or somebody. Exactly. Uh, we can do that. And it, they get an, a notification within the app to say, oh, so-and-so is pinging you to the room. Sometimes you can do a blanket ping, which, you know, people will ping you in and say, oh, uh, you know, I'm talking to so-and-so, come join me. And they're just hitting a bunch of people. Sometimes exactly. you can, depending on who it is, you know that maybe your name came up and they're like, let me just see if this person's available and they can come in and talk exactly. to that point. I think just Which is cool. Point, yeah, because I think for me, going back to that point about, you know, meeting new people, I mean, Stefano, Roberta and Chiara, we've got a lovely little WhatsApp group chat now called Clubhouse Moderators. Very <laughs> original, but... <laughs> and, you know, I think it's that point because I was really trying to find that connection with someone and I think... You know, I'm hoping they will hear this eventually, but I want to give a big shout out to them because Stefano and Roberto were the two moderators which actually gave me the chance to become a moderator and moderate my own room. You know, because they saw potential in me and then they spoke to me, they messaged me, they were like, would you like to moderate our rooms? And I was in a room before called the Art Gallery and I was moderating a room with them. And then, you know, sometimes you need people like that to see things in you and you're like, oh, okay, well, you know, why not? I'll give it a try. So thanks to them, like, you know, I'm so grateful because on Clubhouse, I've actually made some really great friendships. I mean, you know, I've met some awesome people and it's it's quite heartwarming to see that they're, you know, not just followers on a screen, but they're actual people who I can engage with in real life. So, yeah, I just wanted to jump in with that there. That's awesome. Yeah, they are. They are great to hear them interact with some of the questions or sort of the answers to your questions when people come into your rooms is, uh, is, is great. And, I, you know, the other point with the rooms, too, is some of these... A lot of the rooms have a time limit. So, that, you oh, yeah. know, it may be at one o'clock for two hours and then the moderator closes the room. Exactly. There are some rooms that are open 24 hours a day. Yes. And those are interesting as well because you've got people all over the world. Like you'll join a room in the afternoon and or into the evening and you've got people that are up at, you know, two or three o'clock in the morning on the other side of the world that just are in the room hanging exactly. out. Exactly. 
And nice. so that's that's kind of fun as well. It's a good space. And I think for even for my clubs, I think Stefano's club as well, because we're the only two ones who run a club right now out of the moderators. I think what we do is quite good because we schedule our rooms in such a way, because obviously you need to schedule a few rooms to understand when the there's a larger audience, when more people will actually come in, a rough estimate. And the times to do it at is because at that particular time, like he's in Italy and I'm in Canada. So we're six hours apart. So I think it's interesting because when we do host rooms, we do it in such a way that, for example, if mine is at 10.30 a.m., you know, Canada time, for example, and on a Tuesday, the most people chime in at that time. So that's one of the days. So Tuesdays at 10.30 a.m. is when I do my club because a lot of people are active at that time. And I don't schedule anything else for the day in the club because I know that I mean, I get why you would need to have a time limit on things because obviously, you know, the schedules, people have other priorities. But for me, I think Clubhouse is very much like almost like, I guess, a priority in my day. Like, you know, when I do create the room, it's to obviously create knowledge, educate people and pick at people's brains with my questions and get them to think. And I think for me, so when I do host a room and Stefano as well, we make sure we have nothing else in the day because we can let the room go on for two hours, three hours. And that sounds long, but... Once it gets to about two hours, you know people are tired because people start leaving and the conversation just drops down. It becomes quite slow. So I think we use the audience as a timer to tell how long to run our rooms. But I think it's a great way because I personally don't like to rush anyone when they're speaking. I want to give them the full opportunity. I mean, if they're going on and on and on, maybe I'll be like, come back here a bit, you know. But I think it's, you know, it's quite flexible right now, Clubhouse. And I think I enjoy that the most about it. Yeah, I think I'm so glad you to have you on and talk about this because you're the first uh, person I've spoken to about this outside of Clubhouse and the only artist I've really spoken to about this at this level. So I'm so glad that the listener now has a little bit of a background and an understanding about Clubhouse. And I think it is coming to, I think there's a a beta app for Android that's being rolled out. I think, I don't know if it's in use, but people talk about in May. So um, I think there's more coming with that. I'm interested to see what happens when all these Android users get dropped in. Because rooms have limits. I think it's, is it 3,000 people or 4,000 people? I think three or 4K, yeah. I think 4K, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, there was one, um, I think there was one with Bill Gates and Elon Musk, not at the same time, but one of them I couldn't get into. So there was kind of another room where people were talking about it, which I don't understand. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. So we'll include links to all of that awesome. in, the, in the show notes. And uh, when we get to where to find you online, we'll go into detail on that as well. Great. So I wanted to go back to your art practice a little bit and ask you kind of what, what do you have coming up in the next few months? What are you looking forward to? What's what's on the plate for you? So, I mean, I'm in terms of, I was really, I mean, because I was hoping to apply for some exhibitions and openings, but they're all online now. But there is a place, there is a gallery right next to my studio where I'm at actually in downtown Toronto. There's a gallery called Gallery 1313. And it's right next to my studio. And I'm just hoping because, you know, I've had a show with them before online, but I'm hoping to kind of, one, things open up, collaborate with them and kind of organizing or curating a show because I really want to, you know, get an experience of, I have curated shows, but I think it'll be nice to actually work or volunteer with a gallery to kind of, you know, organize a show and perhaps even propose some ideas. But in terms of my practice, I'm working on a small project. Well, I'd say small, it's not small, but I'm working on a project and um, it's going to be, how do I start this? Okay, so you know how when you guys go into an art shop and you see the different color swatches, whether it's in a catalog or whether it's underneath your little paint tubes, the little mm-hmm. rectangular color squares or rectangles. I'm going to be creating this large piece where I'm going to almost create my new line of colors. 
but I'm going to again focus on this notion of categorization and history. I'm going to go around and over the next few months collect as many earth colors as I can. This is going to take quite a while because remember this, that making your color takes one hour to make one color. So imagine that if you're going to make right. 20, it's going <laughs> to 20 <laughs> hours there. But I'm going to create this project where I'm going to create color swatches made from entirely handmade earth pigments. And it's going to be like, obviously, a very commercial twist to it because I'm looking at this categorization of colors and how that can, you know, affect our ways of thinking from the lens of color. But I'm going to be making color swatches, with, I guess, I think 20 or 30 different earth colors. So I'm in the process of doing that. I mean, the weather's been a bit haywire, so I've not been able to collect any nice sand and rocks lately, but going there. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to that. You'll have exactly. to uh, to share that as you uh, get deeper into it. That's for exciting. For sure, for sure. So I wanted to ask, like, you know, you talked about COVID having an impact on your education. And once again, I do appreciate you, you know, being, leaving school as you did and being so early in your career, your creative career, relatively speaking, to uh, to be able to come on and talk about all of this kind of, of thing as well. But how has it been? Because you've come from where you were into Canada into the middle of COVID exactly. at this point. <laughs> and the province that we're both in right now is, I mean, we're we're at the worst point we've ever been with the pandemic and it's not looking better. Great. How are you managing that in the studio? How How's your, how, how are you feeling these days? It is difficult. I won't lie. I mean, I think I'm driving my husband crazy, but... <laughs> It is, it is difficult because I've had this one week where I've not been able, I mean, that motivation to work is not there because, you know, normally I'm the kind of artist who gets motivated by visiting galleries, seeing someone else's work and then getting inspired. But with everything being so stagnant and kind of on hold, I've had a period of a week where I've kind of just been really not lazy, but unmotivated. And I don't feel like getting any work done. Even getting up and going to the studio is an effort, partly because I think I've burnt myself out after making work because I've been you know for six months when I was uh, my degree was online and then after that I was in Canada for obviously you know I've only just got my studio space bear in mind a month and a half two months ago so I was kind of working in really small spaces I was just doing little sketchbook studies but I think because getting access to a physical space after not having that access for about you know a year was like oh my god I'm really excited I'm gonna go in and just make work and I got so overexcited about it that I've burnt myself out and now I think with the pandemic, it's just kind of an addition to it where I'm just kind of like, oh, well, I'll go maybe on Tuesday, maybe Wednesday next week. And doing that, it's been two weeks, but I'm feeling okay that ways. But I kind of, I'm in two minds where I'm trying to push myself to go out and kind of make work. But being an artist, once you don't have that active market or environment operating right now, it's hard. So I'm still kind of battling the two different demons, yeah. creative demons. <laughs> right. Well, the thing is, once it gets better, it's going to feel really good, exactly. right? Because you came from this low point. I agree 100%. So what's one thing you wish you knew before you started your creative journey in reflecting on it? Interesting question there, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it would be the pressures that you face as a creative. Because obviously, I started off very much like, oh, okay, you know, and I did have the pressures when I was young. But when you're a kid, you don't really take them seriously. I think I wish I was told about the efforts needed to kind of evolve yourself or kind of if you want to pursue the arts as a full-time thing you really have to be sure you're in for it because I know it sounds easy but it's not any easier or it's not as I mean it's just as difficult as any other career because for me I was not prepared I'm the kind of person who's kind of taken things as they come but once I did my master's obviously this is COVID existing but 
there's this whole question that hang on now what is the career what career path i'm going to take because although people do say you know oh you're an artist you can't make money there is some truth to it that you know it's difficult to make a consistent source of income being a creative and that is something which i've had a battle with because i've been at times when i've sold my paintings i was like you know it's going okay i can possibly make a consistent source of income but then there's this thing that I, I want the experience of a nine to five job. I know everyone's going to listen to this and be like, what? A nine to five job? But <laughs> yeah. I want that experience. And I think because being in the art industry is a tough one and you're not prepared in the sense that you don't know what's coming after you graduate. Because once you're in arts education, it is a totally different environment compared to what you are when you're a proper professional artist. And I think I was not aware of the competition that I'm going to face because obviously it is a competitive field, the arts. You've got all your curators, gallerists, and, you know, there's a lot of different, like, you know, given my cultural background, I am Indian. So, again, there is aspect to that in terms of, you know, the kind of hierarchy, the systems in place. But I think if I were told, and again, you can't be told everything, but if I were just made aware of the competition that exists in the field, it would have kind of mentally prepared me a bit more in terms of, you know, growing as an artist. Very well-rounded answer. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think is the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I received in literature sense was when, Literally, it was from my husband when I came here, because obviously, you know, I've been exposed to a certain environment in the UK. And then before that was from my mom and dad in Bahrain, I think, because my husband was here in Canada for about a year and a half, almost two years now before I arrived. The way, obviously, he's been exposed to the environment. He's seen, I think the best advice he gave me was, when I do come to the country, network, build a connection, because as a creative, and as any professional, really, it's important to have that in anywhere, really, whether it's kind or not. He said, network with as many people Kind of just be true to yourself, stand your ground, because you can get bogged down in a lot of pressures where, oh, you know, I need a job quickly. I mean, I've just migrated here. I need a job. He's getting a job. She's getting a job. You know, all those kind of conflicting monsters in your head. I think it's more of a constant reassurance and advice is that you're doing fine. Keep on the track. Keep at it. Basically, you're on the right track and keep doing what you're doing. I think it's more of a reassurance than advice because I... I need that a lot. I mean, I'm the kind of person who works on a lot of reassurance. I mean, if I do something, I'm like, oh, is this okay? Is it okay? <laughs> kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. So I think it's it's a constant reassurance that, you know, it's okay. And plus with the pandemic, I don't need to rush anything. Everyone's in the same situation. Take it easy and just calm down, basically. So it's more of a reassurance, I'd say. That's advice. awesome. Yeah, I think we could all use that advice. Oh, exactly, guys. Don't worry. It's going to be yeah. fine. <laughs> That's it. So I always get to this point where I ask my guests for a bit of homework. Hi. For the listener to be able to action uh, and walk away with something that they can do. So what are your thoughts for homework for the listener? I think I would suggest one thing because we are in a place like the pandemic right now. And the most one place where everyone is going is the outside world, the natural world. You go for your strolls in the park, you take the dogs for a walk, you know, take the kids out for a run. But I think what I'd recommend is it's more of a homework to kind of get your creative sides going. Go outside to any kind of place, any landscape, you know, whether it's your park near your home, if it's a specific place, go anywhere, just get outside. But this is the tough one, guys. Leave your phones at home. I did this last week. Leave your phones at home, go outside and absorb the natural environment and take take about, I guess, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 minutes, even if longer, feel whatever you need to feel, absorb whatever you need to absorb, come back. Even if it's a pencil or any coloring pencils, make a small sketch of what you felt using the colors that come to your mind. And it's a bit complicated, but what I would say is go outside, take in, let yourself feel what you need to feel, 
when you come back and you can do this immediately or you can do this after an hour when you come back use any material you want to use that gives off color of course any color that you want to use that encapsulates how you were feeling at the moment because i think it's so important to understand and i know i'm obsessed with color guys i promise i'm gonna <laughs> shut up but <laughs> it's okay i would say understand how as a creator when you make something how you feel and i think it's important to understand that in a place like the pandemic so go outside come back home and use any color that makes you that reflects your feelings what you're feeling at the time hope that made sense that's lovely I, I like that idea exactly <laughs> mike you got to do that now <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I was thinking, well, if I just bring my phone, I could take a picture. No, <laughs> no phones. That's a really good idea. I think we need to be uh, more open to entertaining and, and our senses I rather agree. than just focusing on what we Because with see. the whole technology and the phone, I think we're really, even when you go to a gallery, you're taking pictures of like, you know, Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. He would have wanted to do that if he was <laughs> still alive. Right. So kind of put your phones aside, which is the challenge and mentally take a picture of it and then come back and see how that reflects. That's awesome. I love that homework. Thank you, Sinead. Great. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, uh, where can people find you online? So you can find me on Instagram once it is reactivated. Um, right. On Sunaina Art 97 So I think, Mike, you'll probably give the name and the link. You'll write it down. Yes, I'll provide That's a link in the awesome. show notes. So yep. Sunaina Art 97 is my Instagram. And my website as well, um, as I was mentioning about digital paintings before, is www.sunainakbart.com. So that's my website. You can find me there. And yeah, so once my Instagram is up and running, I will be happy to kind of get in touch with anyone who wants to engage with me further. That's awesome. And I'll try and provide a link to uh, to Clubhouse. I've actually not linked yes. to Clubhouse to understand um, how that all happens, but yeah. I will... Um, See how that goes. <laughs> yeah. I'll try and link to it. If not, I'll provide a um, uh, your uh, handle name Perfect. Yes. Uh, in the show notes as well in Clubhouse so people can find you there find too. There. Great. And join my yeah. lovely room. So unpick your brains. <laughs> yes. It, it's it's so fun. Like if I think if you're an artist and you want to start into Clubhouse, I think that one of the safest places to go is uh, into one of Sinead's rooms because I think they're, they're nice and small. So you have an opportunity to speak and... The, you can just sit in the audience if you choose to and listen, but I think the uh, the questions you have or the focus for those conversations is is always quite thoughtful, and there's always so many different angles to to answering those questions that you ask. So I think it's great. Exactly, awesome. Thank you. So, so thank you so much, Nana, for uh, for coming on the podcast. It was it's such a joy to talk to somebody who's so kind of early in their career, but has such kind of wisdom around what they're doing and where they're at and uh, being able to talk to you about such an exciting new technology with Clubhouse and someone who's connected to a, a version of ourselves from 28,000 years ago. So it's, it's <laughs> kind of cool to have it all together in this same conversation. You've been lovely. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much, Mike. It's been an absolute pleasure. Absolutely loved it. Awesome. I will see you online. Yes, we will speak soon. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Show notes, including links to everything Sunaina and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 51. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, share, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This will surface the podcast for others to enjoy. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod. 